Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the the show. show, 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 show. This is episode two, two of the Terribly Vexed Pot. We're off to a great start. Have you started recording? Yeah. Good. Let me try that again. Hello, this is episode two of the Terribly Vexed Podcast with me, Justin Perlioni, and Josh Branson. Yep. We're back again. Once again, we are here, and we're going to talk about... Sorry, am I yelling? No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just adjusting. You know, we're both, we're both just chit chatting. I just, you know, you gotta adjust the levels. Sorry, don't take any offense to it. So we're gonna talk about the Dennis Martin disappearance this time, right? Yes, we are. Yes, the big one, the biggest in the Smoky Mountains, or is it the biggest anywhere? Well, it changed search and rescue throughout all of the national parks. So it's kind of a big deal, the Dennis Martin disappearance. It's a big case. I think in the last episode you said there were 1,200 people that just went up there. 1,400. Over the course of, you know, the three weeks that the main search was taking place. So Yeah. So they kind of destroyed any sort of evidence. Evidence, you know. When uh, trackers go out, they're looking for sign Right. And sign could be a broken branch, it could be a footprint, any number of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, you have, you know, 300 people a day traipsing around all over the place. It's going to just destroy any possible yeah, it's no good. clue that they could locate. Well, but, uh, yeah. See, when you said that, I was thinking, like, when you said there were like too many people up there, I literally was thinking, like, 50 to 100. <laughs> right, that's, yeah. yeah, which is what it would... I don't know if that's what it would be now, but it's definitely much more specialized groups of guys that are highly trained right. and girls. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. So, so where did this take place? Uh, it took place at Spence Field in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And uh, if you'd like, Justin, I could give you a little brief historical reference to. Uh, Spence Field. I would love it. As well as geographical to kind of explain where this is located in the park. Please do. If you'd like that. I'm going to consult my notes here on this. Made some quality notes for this podcast. I see that. We prepared thoroughly. Yeah. Way more prepared than I am. Yeah. (laughs) But when it comes to UFOs, you better believe I'm about to, I'm going to blow your mind like you're about to blow my mind. When you're really going to take off. Yes. Take yeah, this is, we're, we're in your world right now. So, <laughs> so. all right. So, Enlighten uh, me. All right, let me see what we've got here. So let's, uh, I guess Spence Field is essentially named after James Spence. He was a settler who built a cabin up on the field in around about 1830. Spence and his wife, Carolyn Law, they were connected with the Cades Cove area. So Cades Cove is the area just below Spence Field. Spence Field is the mountain that rises to about 5,000 feet 
above Cades Cove. And, of course, most people that come to the Smokies will go to Cades Cove. They know exactly what that is. They'll drive the loop and check out the houses, the old cabins and stuff. Can I just just interject some knowledge that I have? Cades Cove has an 11-mile loop. That's true. That's all I got. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) You can uh, ride that loop on your bike if you want to on Wednesdays and Sundays, I believe. They'll close it off to cars. I I did that once when I was a kid. My dad yelled at me for going too fast. Did you have a helmet on? I don't know. I don't remember. He was just trying to make sure that you were going to be okay and not, you know, get hurt. I'm sure. I'm sure he had a good reason to scream at me in front of other people, but, you know, I, I digress. Go ahead. We both are digressing. Um... So, um, James and his wife, Carolyn, they herded livestock at Spence Field during the warmer months, and uh, according to the notes, they would only rarely visit the lower elevations, which was kind of common with the Balds, like Gregory Bald, uh, Russell Field was possibly another one, but the Balds are sort of an an anomaly in the parks. Uh, Some of them are natural. The one at Spence, I don't believe, is supposed to be natural. I think it was supposed to have been made by him to uh, graze his cattle. For the cattle. For the cattle. Yeah. I didn't, Some of them are natural. Some of them are natural. I did not know that. Supposedly. Hmm. I, I, did, I always assumed they were just, you told me. Man-made. Dead. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of them are supposed to be natural. I could be wrong. I like that. Because I do like a nice bald. <laughs> They're cool. When you're up on them, they're cool. Yeah, so uh, like I said, most of the time they would not come down from uh, their mountain up there. And again, this was in about the mid-1800s. It's talking about one story here. Uh, A few days before the birth of their son Robert in 1840, Carolyn Spence walked alone 10 miles to their home in the White Oak Cove in order to be near neighbors who could assist her with her birth. So that's about the only time they would come down is when they really needed to. Yeah. Uh, Any sort of emergencies. And in the summer months, you know, that's when they would take the uh, livestock up there because the lower elevations were going to be used for crops, growing crops, like in your Cades Cove area and stuff. Right. And I'm not sure where the White Oak Cove area is. I don't know where that is. There's lots of coves, lots of hollers. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of going back to the notes here a second. John Oliver was one of the first settlers in Cades Cove, and he claimed that Spence burned trees and cleared Spence Field in the 1830s. Is he related to the HBO show host? Uh, probably. Yeah, I would assume so. Go ahead. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the um, summertime pastures used in the 1900s. Thousands of cows, horses, sheep, and goats would grazed, graze in the bottom lands, and then they would move them up to the top, um, you know, when they would start growing crops or whatever. So it was mainly sheep. Is that what was going on there? A combination. Okay. If you actually go up to uh, Roan Mountain, they still put sheep up there today to keep those balds clear. When I've seen them and taken pictures of them. So, Roan Mountain in Johnson City. What's the, uh, the LeConte? Right. What, what do they use on the trails up there? I, I, you've, you've taken pictures of them, too. 
What do you mean? The, the pack animal that they use? Llamas. Llamas. The llama okay. train. Yeah, the llama yeah. train that supplies the lodge on Mount Lacant uh, during its operation. They go up three days a week and take the llamas up. Really? Yeah. They used to use horses back in the early days. Why do the they park. use llamas now? Just because it's cooler? Less, uh, they don't. Less invasive, uh, as far less destructive is a better I word. Less destructive on the trails. Their feet are very soft. They're made to be doing that kind. Of, okay. Yeah, they have good endurance, and uh, I think the guy that I came down with that time, the llama wrangler, I think he said they can carry about a hundred pounds per llama, and most times I think they probably don't push that, but they'll take up, take bring down garbage, trash, take up laundry. Relatively light things. It's one of those hikes I've always wanted to do, but well, there's five I've ways never... up to Lacan, so you let me know when you want to go. Is one of them an escalator? Yes, there down. is an escalator. I am down to the lodge. No, it just seems like a. You were telling me that the guy that just stays up there in winter, the the winter winter caretaker. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a dream, dream. job. Yep, yep, probably yep. is, except for the pay. Yeah, but what do you what do you need it for? If you're it depends. You don't need how how long is he up there for? And this uh, is well the lodge just closed now, so basically November until when it opens in March. End of March. He's up there the whole time. Not really. He comes down, you know. Uh we'll probably go to like Gatlinburg to uh do some shopping, get groceries and things that he, you know, can't keep up there because I don't think they have any sort of refrigerative abilities. Hmm. So you're talking dried foods and things like that. Yeah. And people also hike up in the winter, like myself, and will take things to them. Yeah, little treats like uh, chocolate bars and coffee and <laughs> mm, so He's good. A, like a hobbit. It's like a hobbit. Yeah. Um. Just real quick, going back to the notes. Sorry, I'm sorry, I digressed yet again. One of the peaks in the Smoky Mountains, it's okay, we can digress, mm-hmm. uh, is named after Arnold Guillot. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's a peak that is located in a very remote section, sort of the northeasterly end of the park. Uh, he surveyed a lot of the Smokies in the 1850s. He measured the elevation at Spence Field at around 4,900 feet. So it's cruising around 5,000 feet, in case you were curious, to kind of get the geographical sense of where you're at. Uh, Author Horace Kephart also frequented Spence Field, and there used to be a herder shack up there. And Horace Kephart was a beloved author that lived uh, just in Bryson City over there on the other side. He has a very interesting life. Read up on Horace Kephart, if you get a chance. Had a good way with words, this man. How you spell that last name? Kephart? Yeah. K-E-P-H-A-R-T. Okay. Horace Kephart. There we go. A lot of good writing by this man, Mr. Kephart. So. Uh, and sort of like Spence Field, just to give you some more geographical location... Uh, there's a couple of ways you can hike up that are, I guess, the shortest routes. If you're coming from the lowlands, you can go up the um, 
As you're going into Cades Cove, you can go into the picnic area and take the Anthony Creek Trail, which will take you up to the, I think it's Bot Mountain, excuse me, it's the Boat Mountain Trail, which was actually a Jeep trail that they used during the search for Dennis Martin quite often. It's essentially a road or a Jeep trail. I don't think it's used anymore. Not anymore. But it's very wide. You can tell that it's not just your typical footpath trail. It's yep. very wide. And you can pick that up also from the road coming into Cades Cove. Uh, so there's essentially two ways. One's ever so slightly shorter than the other. And uh, with the Anthony Creek Trail, you can actually go up to Russell Field. kind of makes a loop, which is where they spent the night first when they went up, the Martin family. Mm -hmm. Back in 1969, they stayed at Russell Field, which is lower in elevation by maybe a thousand or two feet, and that's where they stayed before they went up to Spence Field. This was a, this was a Father's Day tradition, right? Correct. So, yeah. Very good. Somebody's been looking at their notes. Thank you. Good job. I don't have. It's one thing I don't have to mention now. Yeah. See, I'm here for you. Yeah, and this was going to be Dennis's first uh, time joining them. So was, I think I might have another fact. Please. Was he, was he a week away from his seventh birthday? Correct. Yes. That's seven days. But um, just before we move on into that, it sits on the Appalachian Trail, Spencefield. When you get up to Spencefield um, and you hop on the AT, you can kind of go northeast up the... Appalachian Trail, and you'll hit Rocky Top, your next peak, and then you'll also hit Thunderhead Mountain. So you have some peaks up there, and I've heard Dwight McCarter talk about the weather up there, and it's it's pretty true. Uh, there's kind of always a, a pretty regular wind coming out of North Carolina up there, so the weather can change. It's kind of open. Uh, there's not really any sort of like other mountains blocking anything coming over, mm -hmm. you know, from the other side. So the weather can change rapidly, and it does, and it will in the story that we're about to tell you about Dennis. May I ask a question, like an actual question for me? Absolutely. How far away is Spencefield from Lingman's Dome, where we stayed? Uh, and is it like, is the wind the same? Because that night it was, pardon my French, it was rip-roaring. Yeah, it could be just as bad, if not worse. Um, back in 69, 51 years ago, when this took place, um, it was a lot more open up there. Right now, it's not as open as it once was. A lot of trees have grown up at Spencefield, so you don't really have that. Like a lot of the pictures that I've seen anyway, it's like it is a field it is open yeah and you have almost 360 degree views up there you know into tennessee and north carolina so um that wind like i said there's nothing to stop it so you're just in it and you go up to like rocky top which is maybe like a mile and a half north of spencefield spencefield yeah and it is incredibly open it is 360 degree views how far is it from Klingman's Dome? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say maybe about 13 to 15 miles south on the AT. I don't right. know if that's so. the crow flies, but up the trail, it's probably about 13 to 15 miles would be my guess. All right, so fairly close to other disappearances. Yes, fairly close. Yes. 
in between, and we'll, I think I can probably talk about this because it's in one of Dwight McCarter's journal entries as they started sort of expanding their search further and further out from Spencefield, they go to Derrick Knob, which is about halfway between Klingman's Dome and Spencefield on the AT. And I believe there's a shelter there as well. There's shelters all along the AT in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, mm-hmm. as well as other places in the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. But uh, anyway. So what exactly... And like I know what a bald is. You have a lot of trail experience. What exactly is a knob? I don't really know. Well, okay. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah, as I've heard, I've heard it my whole life, but I've, I don't know what a knob. Is. Well, I know it could just what be that they've named is, it something that right. Yeah, it could just be that they've named it that. Yeah. It, to so that it's not it's not a bald it's not the same as everything else that's right. named you know right, right. such and such uh you know on Cle- on uh, mount leconte you have the cliff tops which you know it's not a bald it's not a knob i don't guess is it a geographical feature i don't know well are you going to google that right I now i think i'm while you're talking i'm going to google what is a knob do it and see what kind of filth comes up before I find the actual proper answer. Uh, let's see. A, a rounded, usually isolated hill or mountain is a knob. It seems like that would almost work for any sort of mountain or peak. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, or a rounded protuberance. Protuberance. And see, I've never been to Derek Knob, so next time I try to attempt to go that far up the Appalachian Trail, then I will perhaps be on the lookout for this protrusion. For a good-looking knob. Yeah. (laughs) This protrusion (laughs) that they speak of there. I like it. But so, yeah, if you want to go ahead, we can get into the actual Dennis Martin case, if you'd like to. I would love to. All right, so... Uh, just to give you some information on young Dennis, he was six years old at the time. He was born in 1962, and he disappeared June 14, 1969, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, the search effort, go ahead and get some of this information out of the way, was the most extensive in the park's history. Ultimately, it involved more than 1,400 searchers and it covered a 56-square-mile area. That is a massive search. Yeah. Now, this 1,400 people wouldn't be there all at once, obviously, but they were looking at Dwight McCarter's book, Lost, a Ranger's Journal of Search and Rescue, on the order of probably 150 to 350 people a day uh, looking for Dennis. And, of course, that changed after this disappearance, It wasn't so much about saturating the area with searchers. It was more about getting specialized groups of people in there that knew what they were looking for and not uh, possibly, like we said, trampling on clues, footprints. Mm -hmm. Evidence. Yeah. Right. They were searching areas, researching areas, 
in his book, he talks about finding apples and oranges from other search crews that had just been through there. Um, but even still, with that many people, you would think a six-year-old kid just goes off into the woods. Yeah. There's no way that 350 people a day couldn't locate somebody. Find something. Not the correct way to do it, I guess, now they know. But yeah. even still, you've covered this area with people. They're literally just they arm to arm going through the yeah. woods, you know? Yeah, dogs too. Dogs too. Yeah, just crazy. Um, by the time the search had officially ended in September, the searchers had logged almost 14,000 man hours. And the helicopters that they had utilized had spent nearly 200 hours in the air. So this was a massive search. And, uh, you know, it just, it just went on and on. I think uh, in his book he chronicles about 16 days in his book. Dwight McCarter. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about that book. And, and uh, with the notes and stuff today, we've actually pulled from a few sources. So I've pulled a lot of information from his book, as well as some various sources on the internet, and another one called Unsolved Disappearances in the Great Smoky Mountains by Juanita Baldwin and Esther Grubb. If you all want to locate that book on Amazon, you can find it there. Lots of good information, not only on Dennis's disappearance, but as well as um, Thelma Melton, Trini Gibson, and it talks about a few other cases as well. Yeah. So. But then also, Dennis Martin, he wasn't just like a first-timer in the woods. He's been, he was, for a, you know, for a youngster, Yeah, he kind of knew what was going on up there. Correct. Yeah, in fact, there's a quote from his mother, Violet Martin. She wrote to the newspapers uh, throughout the southeast, and she said, Dennis begs to go to the mountains on weekends. He is an experienced mountain hiker for a six-year-old and is usually in front of the group picking up the trail, end quote. So he loved the outdoors. Yeah. And so, like you were saying earlier, this was a tradition, and Dennis was going to be sort of joining them on this uh, camping trip for the first time. This was a Father's Day outing where they would kind of go up to Russell Field, which you hit first on kind of a loop there, and then you they were going to make their way up to Spence Field. They camped there one night and then Correct. went up. To, yeah. Correct, yeah. So this was going to be like his his introduction to the group. And in this group going up to Spence Field uh, was going to be his nine-year-old brother, Doug. His father uh, was an architect from Knoxville, Bill Martin, and his grandfather, Clyde Martin. The group spent the night in Russell Field, like we said, okay, uh, with Dr. Carter Martin of Huntsville, Alabama, and his two sons. And... I so want to think go ahead. that was another family that also just happened to have the same the same last name, Martin. And I think David Politis has actually talked about that in his interviews as well, that that was another family, not related to them, that they just happened to meet along the way. And they, like, grouped up? With their kids and stuff were hanging out, so they were all having fun. So it's a very sizable group. 
a big group that started searching immediately when yeah. Dennis went off into the woods by himself. Right. Which will explain which, how that all came about yeah. shortly. So it would make it, you know, I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but one of the theories is uh, kidnapping of sorts. Correct. It'd make it very difficult for just some dude to come kidnap a kid out of that whole group. Right. To me, that seems very unlikely. Right. So just very quickly to go into the specifics of how he actually disappeared. The kids were all playing and they were going to sort of jump out of the woods and scare the adults. Right. Right. So they're all playing. But the adults see what they're doing. His father, his grandfather, Mm -hmm. they know what they're doing. A small group of the boys, not including Dennis, they go in one direction, and Dennis kind of goes in another. But his dad saw him, right? Didn't, didn't his father say that they were not? I mean, far am I away. jumping ahead? I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry. no. They were not far away. And so the other kids jump out, do their thing, like they're scaring the adults, whatever. Yeah. And Dennis doesn't come out of the woods. They and I've read different uh, times on this, but they've never been over ten minutes. Some sites have said 10 minutes, some say five. I think his father said he was out of my sight for no more than five minutes. And you have to think, and I've read this in a couple places too, that Dennis had a learning disability of to some degree. I don't know what that means. Um, so you think if your child, your six-year-old child, had some sort of learning disability or was impaired in some way, you're really going to be more cautious about not letting him out of your sight so far away from anything up there on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. So I would really, I would not think that he would not have, he would not have been out of his sight for 10 minutes. That's a long time to let your six year old son just go off into the woods. Yeah. I've seen five minutes. I think probably no more than five minutes. Right. That would make sense. Especially considering how the father reacted Correct. Afterward, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's devastating. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't think he would have been more than five minutes out of his sight, anybody's sight. And you, again, you get a large group of people there. So Dennis goes in the woods, and he doesn't come out. And uh, as far as what happens next, his father takes off down the trails looking for his son. They go into the woods, start looking for him. Everybody starts spreading out, and they find nothing. There's no footprints. There's no clothes. They don't hear a scream. There's no blood. There's no tear of a clothing, shirt, shorts. He was lightly dressed in little shorts and little T-shirts, and, you know, they found nothing. If I, from my research... Green shorts and a red shirt. I believe so. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> We're dealing specifics here at the Terribly Vexed Podcast. Yes, for sure. Nothing. We spare no expense. So, yeah, everybody, including the family that they met up with that also had the last name of Martin, they all spread out and they all start looking for him. I think it was his grandfather that eventually made his way down to Kate's Cove and found a ranger to join them and tell them that he's been missing. And uh, 
like uh, David Politis has talked about, uh, the weather turned. You know, it was it was the summertime, so it was hot, and the storms kind of start rolling in after you know it's uh, running for a hot spell or whatever there, and it, I think it starts storming around eight or nine p.m. that night, and a lot of rain fell, two to three inches from what I've read on various websites and in uh, Dwight's book. Which obviously can't help the search. Correct. Yes. Because that's going to automatically... that much more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So tracking dogs, it's over. They yep. can't, you know, they're not going to be able to find anything. They're not going to be able to get a scent. Mm-hmm. But they did, from what I see here, they did find some footprints... Is that correct? Yeah. Child-sized footprints. Yeah, I think those were dismissed as being Martin's um, because from the notes, it's I think there was a Boy Scout troop that was participating in the search. See, that's weird, too, because back in the day, you literally just, they brought everybody in that wanted to, to volunteer. So there's a Boy Scout troop. Bad idea. But that's just... Even back then, you would just think, as like the, the leader of the search, you'd be like, "Nah, it's probably not a good idea." <laughs> We're looking for a little kid. And we've yeah. got a bunch of kids looking for a kid. <laughs> just seems bad. Yeah, but Jay was sixties. Yeah, it's uh, probably not the best idea in the world. So, but it was weird that they did. It was a shoe that led just to a stream, and then, but then, did any Boy Scouts with were one of missing a shoe do they ask them that <laughs> i don't know that i don't know it doesn't go any further into any of that information he was wearing an oxford type shoe which was the shoe that you know dennis was wearing right yeah so anyway yeah i guess that ultimately uh you know turned into nothing yep But uh, yeah, we're in some dead spots here. <laughs> cut this part out. <laughs> you won't, though, will you? No, I will. You will not cut this part out. Maybe not. I kind of like these moments, but <laughs> if you want me to cut it out, I'll cut it out. <laughs> hey, we're we're still learning. We're still learning here. Yeah, we're getting our feet wet. Relax. Yeah. We're going rolling here. Yeah, I think we're doing a good job. Going back to um, Dennis. Uh, Martin, uh, the, just from Dwight McCarter's book, I pulled a few excerpts from his daily journal. So he chronicled 16 days, I believe, in his book, Lost. Um, it's talking about 300 searchers, you know. Basically, the search consisted of them being taken up the uh, Boat Mountain Trail uh, by Jeep, They'd be taken up by helicopter daily if the fog permitted because the weather just essentially turned bad the whole time they were up there, right? So they're mm-hmm. dealing with lots of rain, lots of fog, lots of wind, and you can't fly, I guess, in those types of conditions. Yeah. I think even if you could, I mean, what's the can't see anything. What's, yeah, what's but the... also like transporting guys up to Spence Field from Cades oh, Cove. Oh, I got you. I see. You see what I'm I saying? See. Yes, So yes. that hampers the search because you're having to bring back uh, people that are really tired, exhausted, mm-hmm. and bring new, fresh people up, you know, that have, you know, 
better ready to go or whatever. But yeah. it was, you know, so I'm looking at the notes here, you know, transported 65 more searchers and supplies to Fence, Spence Field, 365 searchers on Tuesday, June 17th, 1969. And the, those types of numbers, you see, they just kind of keep going day after day. And that's a lot of people to have found really nothing. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's that seems very unlikely. Yeah, they're searching all the drainages. Mm-hmm. They're going over, you know, ground that other searchers have has already gone over. It's it just seems highly unlikely that they wouldn't be able to find anything at all ever uh, in the time that this was going on. So, from the journal on the fourth day, um, July seventeenth, also various shoe prints were found. Some thought to be Dennis, others not. You know. They found a boy in Cade's Co., but it wasn't Dennis. He just happened to be wearing similar clothes to Dennis. So they had their hopes up and all, you know, quickly let down. It's also interesting to note, which David Politis has talked about, uh, the Special Forces, the Green Berets, which we were talking about before we started the show here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was such an odd thing that the Green Berets were utilized in the search for Dennis. I think they were in the area doing... Just happened to be there. Training, right. Um, on this fourth day of the search uh, in his uh, book, he says 40 special forces, 50 junior college students, 75 national park personnel, and 20 different rescue squads. And who knows how many people could have been involved in each one of those rescue squads. Man. So that gets you up to three or 400 people. Yeah, and that's per day every day for weeks and you know the search was officially canceled in september and i guess they would just sort of go up with trackers mm-hmm. like dwight dwight yep which by the way i also noticed this in his book as well it's just uh another little piece of information the three main trackers were J.R. Buchanan, Art Whitehead, and his brother Grady Whitehead. Dwight was only 24 at the time of Dennis's disappearance. And in his words, quote, In no way do I possess the man-tracking skills that Buchanan and the Whiteheads have, but I have been lucky enough to have accompanied them on different searches in the past. End quote. So at the time... Dwight had not yet become the legend man tracker that he would at that uh, point later in life. Yeah. He, there were some other guys that were already really, really good, had been doing it for a long time. And, and that just brings up another point. It's so odd that a six year old kid can go into the woods probably no more than 50 feet away for just a few minutes. First off, not be found by your father, your family, friends that are all standing there, but then disappear so much so that a professional tracker cannot locate you. Something really strange has happened if a guy like Dwight McCarter or the guys that trained him can't find you. That is very strange. There's no way around it. That's odd. If they can't find any sign of what happened to you, that's very, very strange. Yeah, and like you were saying, like even like something as small as like a broken twig, something like nothing. 
Yeah, like when you join Dwight on one of his guided hikes, for example, he'll tell you and show you the smallest little details about everything. So when he was called upon to go looking for somebody, he's turned it on, okay? He will notice every small detail if something is not right. I just remember walking with him, and he's talking to all of us, and he's he's noticing a small flower that's blooming, and it shouldn't be blooming yet, you know, and it tells him something. No detail goes unnoticed with somebody like that when you get into that business, you know. Right. They're hyper-aware. Hyper-aware. Yeah. Every little rock, every flower, every bush, every shrub, every tree. He said, Josh, you know, if you're lost in the woods, you could eat the bark of that tree. It's got everything you need. <laughs> I was like, what? Some sort of a beach, I think, or something. Oh, speaking of eating stuff on the trails, did I bring this up last time? Remember that, that, I don't know. <laughs> that full body itch to the bone rash? That I had right, right a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, okay, I remember. Yeah, did I, t- did I tell you this already? No. Remember when I was trying to be cool and was like, "Oh, check out this blackberry," and I ate it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tri- My boss told me, well, is an outdoorsman, and like I said, he said, "There's no way that was a blackberry this time of year." <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to be a Dwight and like be cool, but we I need gave to give myself the... a rash. We need to give the listeners here a little backstory on this. On what? On why you were eating this and where this happened and what 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 was the circumstances? Did we actually talk about this on the show? Yeah, I think so. I know we discussed it. I think it was maybe in the introductory episode. It was very briefly, though. Well, in the last episode, we talked about Susan Clements because we were up there. And you mentioned that then. I've already I forgotten. I don't know. I might not have. I don't know. I just thought it was anyway, a funny story. we yeah. go out to Andrew's ball. The point is I'm not a Dwight. this guy grabs the first thing he sees and starts munching off of a bush, it assuming looked, that it's a blackberry. My sleeve got caught on a thorn, and I looked over, and it looked like a blackberry, and I've seen blackberries. I swear to God it was a blackberry, and I wanted to look cool like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I said, hey, Josh, check out this blackberry, and I popped, popped it in. It. And uh, a couple and it days wasn't. later, full body rash. Had to go to the ER to get <laughs> shot in the ass. <laughs> yeah, so that that's the culprit, I think. So I, I have never picked anything off of anything when I've gone into the woods because I don't know what anything is out there. Well, it would be great to learn. I know Mr. McCarter knows everything. Yeah. Uh, but I know nothing about that. So what I eat is what I take with me. And here's the thing. I don't really either. So I just, like I said, I was just trying to impress <laughs> you. you. I was wanting to impress you. <laughs> <laughs> but you nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> hey, watch this. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Pop. Oh, check, yeah, check this out. <laughs> Blackberry, fresh. <laughs> Smoky Mountain Blackberry. He knows exactly what it is, too. Yeah. He knows the name in Latin. I wish I could make something of. I was trying to think of something clever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. Smokus blackberries. No That's good. the best I could come up with. No good. Nope. So, yeah. So, the point is, make sure you're with a guy like Dwight if you're going to eat something in the woods. Yeah. And I would because recommend going on one of his guided hikes. You will learn so much in the few hours that you get to spend with him. 
So anyway, back to the Dennis Martin disappearance. Yes. And the massive search that took place. Uh, so going back to his journal briefly here, uh, on the fifth day, June 18th, excuse me, yes, June 18th. Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I put that in there like that. Stupid me. I think it was not a correct issue. I think it did it for me. Sometimes it does that, you know, don't know what you want. Yeah. And I didn't uh, check it out. This is from Dwight's journal, quote, On this day we grid the Hog Gap area on the Jenkins Ridge Trail in North Carolina. I especially like the Blockhouse Mountain area and the D'Armond Bald, which are on the other side of Hog Gap. There is evidence of old camps at Hog Gap. Excuse me, at Hog Gap. At Blockhouse Mountain there is a huge meadow on top of the Lone Mountain, there seems to be an ancient presence on this mountain, perhaps from early Cherokee or even earlier Indians who left their intricate carvings not far from here. And actually, on one of his guided hikes, he talked to me about some carvings that he found, I think he said, in Fontana Lake. He didn't tell me where. And the, and the lake has to be low, like they have to have dropped the lake for the winter for you to be able to see those carvings. And he didn't really know what they were. He told me about them, uh, like I said, on that last hike. And he had some guys, I think, that were going to do something on that, a documentary or something, and also hmm. utilize his knowledge of the yeah. area. And so, but anyway, hmm. they, they had stationed some people um, at Shookstack Fire Tower and the High Rock Tower, which I don't think they actually got rid of until the early 80s. And they were looking for buzzard activity. That's another way they can look for any possible, you know, decaying yes, organic death. matter. Yes, yes. They'll use buzzards uh, yeah, lookouts. Even, I didn't even think about that. I, I, would, I, I would never have thought of that. Yeah, when I first read that, I was like, yeah. oh, that makes sense. That's brilliant. And they actually found a bobcat that way. They saw some buzzard activity, followed it off into the mountains there, into the woods. And they found a bobcat that had just died so, um, yeah, I guess it works. I mean, that's it. After a few days yeah. of the uh, search, they start getting, you know, calls from clairvoyance and psychics. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Once this makes the news, you know, you start getting those calls from the psychics and they start trying to help out, of course. For a fee, though, or are they just doing it, like, for, you know, <laughs> out of the kindness care? of their hearts? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm not really sure. <laughs> As to what their motivation could have possibly been, uh, they offer lots of predictions. They're very vague. And from his journal entries, the searchers attempted to follow uh, what the information that they provided. It, but again, it was so vague, they couldn't really follow it. Yeah. He's, he's, he's next to a tree, <laughs> down a hill. Right, right. Behind a rock. Yep. It's literally laying, that vague. I feel like he's he's laying on soil. <laughs> Something like that. Right, yeah. right. They're looking off just... He's he's very close. Blank. He's within a five-mile radius <laughs> of where he went missing. Yeah. And you'll find him cold and shivering uh, next to a rock. So they attempted to follow some of the clairvoyance, the psychics... Um, you know, predictions, and they found nothing. There were many of them, by the way. He talks about that several days 
uh, the Daily Journal entries in his book that they would call all the time and, you know. Did any of them ever show up? Is there any stories about that? Like, do you, like, did they think they were just like there, but they were had they had their own little section of search. So they're all just doing their special waters and whatever the hell they're doing. Who knows? And they're just like Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing came of the uh, yeah. yeah, the fortune tellers being able to help out in the search. Unfortunately, I don't know that that's ever hel- actually helped in any search for anybody. Well, maybe that could be a future show. Maybe that, maybe it has happened, and we just don't know, but we're making fun of them for no reason. That's right. Yeah. We will... We apologize to any clairvoyance, <laughs> that are but you should have seen shit. this coming, to be fair. so <laughs> I'm sorry. We apologize, <laughs> but Justin's right. You should have seen this coming. Yeah. Also, weren't the... Oh, go ahead. I'm, 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 I, just wanna, I might be jumping ahead. No, no. I just want to say that we approach a lot of these things with a skeptical mind. Yeah. And But nonetheless, they're strange. For sure. His disappearance is very, very odd. And it hasn't been explained. Yeah. Ever. In 51 years that he's been gone. It's not, not a, been explained by anybody. Nothing. Not a trace. Other than what... Uh, I've seen uh, and heard from Dwight in interviews and talked to him where he thought a wild man took him. Yes, that's what I was just going to bring up. Yeah. Is you that really to, what you were just about to say? I was about to say the... the uh, if I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry, but the, the ginseng guy. Was it Harold? Uh, no, that was just a family that was visiting the park. Okay. You're talking about Harold Keys. Keys. Yes. So we'll jump ahead just a little bit here. Sorry. And uh, talk about a sighting by the family Keys. And when, what year was that? I have it written down here somewhere. But. Right. No, this was within um, a few hours of Dennis disappearing. Oh, really? Really. I thought this, it was... This was um, Harold Key. He was 45 of Carthage, Tennessee. Uh, from what I've read in various places, they were asking a ranger in Cades Cove, in the Cades Cove area, where they could see some bear activity or, I guess, deer, wildlife in general. And a ranger directed them to the Rowan's Creek area in the Sea Branch uh, I guess you would call it a drainage or creek area of Cades Cove. Around here, it's called a crick. A crick. Yeah. <laughs> In a crick. So they make their way to this area. I don't know if this was on a trail or if this was off trail, that they just sort of followed the creek back into a holler. But yond- yonder holler? Yonder holler. And so they get down there, and I think... It was his son first that... We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Okay, we're back. And I would I want to apologize. I, uh, I was moving the computer, and my thumb hit the wrong button. And Josh was in the middle of a story about Harold Key. And uh, but now we're back. Everything's okay. Good. Everything's great. Yeah, we're re-energized. We took a little break. 
piece of pizza. Yeah. Another beer. Beer. Thank you. A tinkle. Quick tinkle. And then outside. Too. And now we're here. So let's get back to old Harold Key. Harold Keys. Keys. Just key. Key. Okay. Key. Harold Key. From Carthage, Tennessee. I don't know exactly where I just left off. I think I just told you that uh, they had talked to a ranger and headed up to Rowan's Creek, which yes. is just off Cades Cove. Mm-hmm. They were looking for some wildlife, bear, deer, what have you. And they get up there and hear a, quote, enormous, sickening scream, according to Harold. And his son spots a unkempt man up on the mountainside with what appears to be something on his shoulder. Now, this took place a few hours after Dennis disappeared, which was at about 4.30 in the afternoon. And wasn't that like, five, you might have it there, five miles or so away from Spencefield? I'm not exactly sure, but it's not too terribly far. Probably... <laughs> Four to five miles. Yeah, if I recall correctly, that's what I read at some point. Yeah, Harold says he thought it might have been a moonshiner uh, off in the woods there. And uh, he didn't report this to the Park Service uh, until a few days later because at the time he was not aware that a boy had gone missing up at Spencefield. Yeah. So, um, he says that he didn't recall the exact moment of time that the incident occurred, um, but it, later, I guess it was discovered that it was probably a few hours after Dennis disappeared. So I guess their initial thought was that a man carrying a six-year-old boy, if that's what it was, could have made that distance in the few hours. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, the FBI didn't think that when they were later brought in to uh, go over uh, witness testimonies of things that they saw in places like mm-hmm. this. They didn't think it was actually possible that somebody could have made the distance from Spencefield down to this Rowan's Creek area. But a wild man is used to that kind of terrain. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and a, a seven-year-old isn't a exactly that hefty of a load. Yeah, especially if he's like killing wild animals and yeah. throwing them over his shoulder. Uh-huh. And he's used to that terrain. Yeah. Probably has his own, like, secret pathways that, you know, he knows. He's not on the regular trails. Yeah. Um, This is kind of interesting, too. Um, Just uh, kind of going along, more talking about that. Um, Harold Key said that he saw a white car uh, parked near his. And when he returned to his car, when the family got back to the car after they had heard the enormous sickening scream and finished their visit up there in Rowan's Creek, the car was gone. The white car was gone. But, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. That could have been anybody. If I'm not mistaken, they were parked in the picnic area as well, which is, um, again, one of the trails you can take is in the back of the picnic area in Cades Cove, which is right next to the campground and the riding stables. So a, a crowded area where cars just park. Very much so. So there's that's really no lead. No. Yeah. But it was uh, it was mentioned in several things. Yeah. Which I guess you know I would have I would have mentioned that to the police if you know. Yeah. Well, possible. Yeah. There's a white van 
right next to my, you know, mm-hmm. rusty, creepy looking van. A chomo, something. If you will. Chomo van. So that was the Harold Key incident. And uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, also Dwight uh, had hoped that the FBI would pursue that lead further. They didn't. And uh, again, because they didn't think that, that somebody could make that distance from Spencefield down there. But he ultimately, I believe, hiked that and did make it in like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So it could have been done. I was actually listening to a coast to coast with, here we go again, George... Politis. Politis. Why can't I not remember that? Anyways. It's just one of those names that's... Yeah. Politis. And I, I mentioned this to you earlier. He was talking about Dwight and interviewing Dwight about this and that whole thing. And Dwight even mentioned, like, why, why are you guys not going up there? Like, I, I could do this in an hour. Why, why are you not trying? Which kind of leads into the whole conspiracy side of the missing 411. Correct, yeah. Like, Which, you know, it's, I guess you're kind of talking about like the Green Berets. You're yeah. kind of wondering why they didn't, it's my understanding anyway, that they did not really, I want to say cooperate, they, uh, they communicate, didn't... work with the Park Service during the search. Yeah. They were in the area training from what I've read, and then they were, of course, utilized during the search but that they did not communicate with the Park Service. They kind of wanted to be left on their own. Like the first time I took a guided hike with Dwight, he said they wanted to be left on their own and do their own thing. Now, that could have just been bravado. Hey, right, we're Green Berets. We don't need your help. Yeah. I don't know that you can attribute anything odd to that. Um, I don't know if it was sort of suggested that they were brought in because something really strange was going something on. Something fishy. Something weird. But I you, mean you'd think that the Green Berets would put in the extra effort and like really just a special forces because man. they're special forces, yeah. Right. I think I would. If I made it to Green Beret, I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna find this fucking kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna show them. But they didn't. No. And uh so, yeah, it's, you know, I don't know how, how strange that is. But, again, the conspiracy being, like you said, why didn't the FBI pursue that lead? Um, could there have been other leads that they didn't pursue that were, you know? Yeah. And, of course, Dwight's whole uh, theory that, it was, that he was taken by a, a wild man. Because, okay, so the Great Smoky Mountains National Park became a park in 1934, right? Mm-hmm. This is 1969. It's been a park for about 30 years. There are vast open areas up there where there are no trails. Vast, rugged areas. Yeah. 30 years after this has been a park, you know, there was a lot of contention in certain areas where they were taking people's land. Yep. Uh, it's quite possible there were people still living up there in the back country. You can go up there, you know, even though they say there's, what, about 900,000 miles of trails in the Smokies alone, lots of areas where there's nothing. In fact, there's yeah. planes that have disappeared in the Smokies in the Appalachia they still haven't found. Gone. Places where people have probably never set foot. It's incredibly thick vegetation, trees, laurel, rhododendron, you know. Do you think it's possible 
like this is just as a theory perhaps Dennis Martin was taken by one such wild man and he's he lived he just lived with him like he just <laughs> grew up as a wild man himself anything's possible yeah cuz he wouldn't know how to get out of there and so once he gets once he gets pally with him you know right he's only 7 you don't know what the dude's like. I don't know what the dude's motives were for nabbing him in the first place. I know. I mean, he could have very well been watching them for a while. Yeah. If they were up there for a couple of days, like mm-hmm. they're at a, a night overnight at at uh, Russell Field, and then they're up there at Spence Field. I don't know if it's a day or two before he disappears. They're not up there long, though. I don't think. Guy could have been watching them the whole time. Yeah. It's from the from the. Vegetation, and I think Hidden. also from Harold uh, Key, his from his uh, account of what he saw, the guy was unkempt. He was wearing, I don't know if it would have been like a pelt or like some sort of like animal hide uh, or yeah. something, but he looked pretty rough. He had a beard, you know, scraggly hair, kind of a thing. I don't know, perhaps Sasquatch. Well, that's another theory that people have. Did yes. he actually see a man, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a crazy story. And the whole missing 411 phenomena is right. crazy. The uh, changing of the weather after the yeah. person goes missing, which in the Thelma Pauline Melton case, I don't think that happened there, though, but it certainly did in the Trini Gibson case. Mm-hmm. The weather had been poor when Susan Clements disappeared that whole week, and it just sort of continually got, got worse, I think. Um, constantly raining, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's it's a very, very strange, you know. So there's lots of there's lots of room for conjecture yes and you know you know mine aliens right abductions because you know i'm like i'm like fox Mulder. i want to believe that it's there but i am very (laughs) skeptical but yeah if i see some solid evidence i'm gonna believe it immediately (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah, so 51 years later, not a trace, no real valid theory, right? I know his father thinks he was abducted. abducted yeah. yeah, not by an alien, but a person. A human, a person. Yeah. He thinks they were being, you know, followed by somebody and nabbed yeah. him when he Because like, you know, if you want to think that it may have been a wild boar, a bear, a mountain lion, uh he it wouldn't have grabbed his mouth. A human would have known to uh, grabbed his mouth and you know, quite keep him quiet. Kept him quiet, right? Yeah. But like I don't know if not that I know how to do that or anything. <laughs> but, yeah. the, the proper method for <laughs> it's weird though because like his dad would have immediately went to the area where he just saw him run in the woods. Yeah, and he couldn't have gone that far. Not, Even if a guy was a wild man living in the woods, could he have gotten so far away from uh, a whole bunch of people searching? You know, know what I mean? That's such a that's a a ballsy move to take a kid from that large of a group. Yeah, so like knowing that something was going because if you're watching him, you'd be you'd know something's going on. Like he wouldn't have just like you know not been paying attention to what his six year old son is doing. Yeah, 
Especially if you had... You're out in the wilds. Yeah. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, we went, when we hiked out to Andrews Bald, you know, there were open areas mm-hmm. and then the tree line off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And so we can imagine that that was basically just like that up there. Yeah. Not that far away. You immediately go right to where he disappeared and nothing. Mm-hmm. It just seems... Out of, just vanished. Yeah. Nothing. Highly unlikely that... It, who knows? That it could have even been a person. What are we dealing with in these disappearances? We just don't know. I don't know. And that, and, and that I think, is why we are terribly vexed. Right, right. <laughs> I saw that coming a mile away. Yep, yep, yep. But uh, kind of going back to Dwight's uh, book here in one of his journal entries on the sixth day of the search. This was uh, Friday, June 20th. Um, says they were beset by thunderstorms. Again, the weather just stayed horrible the whole time. More jeeps and helicopters arrived, uh, but they couldn't be utilized. And he says records show there were 780 searchers up there at Spence Field. Search was suspended at dusk. Six days, 12 and a half square miles had been searched. Nothing. Other than that shoe, but that's... Right? Is that the only piece of possible evidence was that shoe? I don't know if that was the shoe or a shoe print. Was that a shoe? It was an Oxford shoe. Was it an Oxford and shoe? And a sock. And a, and a sock, from what I read, was found And supposedly as well. that's what he lost and what, from what he was wearing. Would have lost because he wore the, he was wearing Oxford shoes, yeah. an Oxford-type shoe. Yeah, but then the, the Boy Scouts were there. Right. So it's not 100%. But then, did it again, was any little Boy Scout missing a shoe? Why did they not ask? Was that wasn't followed up? I guess. Yeah. There's no. But there's no answer to that one. That's the. Those are the only two possible pieces of evidence, right? This is a shoe and a sock, and that's it. Am I wrong? As far as I know, that's it. Okay. In fifty, there was no blood, no yeah. clothing, no clo- articles of clothing, uh, nothing. And so, like, but like a weird thing happens, and he talks about this in his book. And uh, when you're searching for people, sometimes they'll hide from the search and rescue guys when they get near to them or when they're searching for them because they call them out. They're yelling out their name for whatever reason, especially the longer you spend in the woods by yourself if you're lost. Is that, is that paranoia or hypothermia? Uh, it could be a combination a of the two, of, I guess. A bit of both. You revert to like a primal sort of like fight or flight, yeah. real, you know, you have to imagine if you spent several days in the woods, this wouldn't account for him going missing immediately. He wouldn't be hiding so much so that, you know, yeah, he would be terrified of whoever he thinks coming after him. But in Dwight's book, he talks about approaching somebody and they're running away from the searchers. They ran away from him. So like it's it's like uh, when you get like hypothermia, paradoxical undressing, mm-hmm. you start to feel hot when you're actually getting much much colder, you know, and you're getting yeah. closer to death. You actually start taking off your clothes and dropping gear. Dwight talks about that in his book. Um, you know, people will start uh, shedding all of their gear, gloves, backpack. They'll take out. He'll basically follow that. In some cases, he talks about following all of the items that they Just drop. Just a trail of yeah. gear and clothes. A trail of gear and clothes, tents, th- 
things that would keep you alive. Mm-hmm. And people start dropping all of that stuff. What's that called again? Paradoxical undressing. And I actually think I saw that one time. I was hiking to Mount Leconte via the Boulevard Trail, and I passed a guy and his daughter, and he had taken off his jacket, and it was snowing, and I'm talking like probably a good 12 inches of snow. It was very cold. I had on full gear, you know, micro spikes, the whole works, and I passed this guy and his daughter, and he's taking off his shirt, and he's going, God. Yeah, he's taking off his shirt, and he's holding all of his stuff in his hand. But he was his daughter was with him, so I don't know. He was a husky sort of fellow, but uh, <laughs> that's probably why he was. It's like me. It'd be like me hiking in the middle in the dead of winter. I'd just be like, God, so hot. Yeah, it was probably like twenty degrees that day, with with wind ripping through the trees every once in a while when it would kind of open up on the trail yeah. out there. He's probably loving that. And that wind came through. He's it could have like, been normal, oh. or it could have very well been me seeing. With my own eyes, this mm-hmm. phenomenon of people taking off their clothes, which is just, it's a weird thing, but people do it and it happens all the time. Yeah. Did you say anything to him? I talked to him briefly, but I didn't say anything about, you know. I mean, but he seemed okay. Like, if he were by himself, I would have stayed with the dude, but he was with, uh, he was with what appeared to be his daughter. Yeah. And she looked to be in her 20s, mid to late 20s, I guess. So, right. so I assumed. She handle it. I hope so. Yeah. I never heard anything. I went. I went hiking to uh, what's it? Abrams Falls, a little tiny little baby hike. Little baby hike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went there and I I made it and I was like so out of breath, you know. I'm, I'm on the way back. There's that one big hill, you know. I know. Yeah, we were coming down. <laughs> right, right. And there's this little kid just running, sprinting up that hill. And, and an old, I'm assuming he's his grandfather with like a walking stick. And he's just, are we almost there? And I'm like, yeah. But he wasn't. I might have killed that guy for all I know. But I felt bad for him. Yeah. Because I know the pain. But yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the 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 search just continues to get larger and larger with people. You know, you're nearing a thousand at this point, just a few days in, and and nothing is found. So each day, they're shuttling people up and shuttling people down. You know, and the search the search is is spreading out and getting further and further away. Earlier, I'd mentioned Derek Knob, which is about halfway between Klingman's Dome and Spencefield, mm-hmm. and this is just sort of an interesting excerpt from his uh, book as he's talking about this. Uh, there was a settlement at Derrick Knob known as New World, and it dated back to the Civil War. This is kind of where f- several families had moved to escape the war. They kind of stayed up there away from everything that was going on. So they kind of lived in peace up there. And you're talking a place sort of like an elevation about 5,000 feet, sort of going between five and 6,000 feet, and very hard to get to at this time. It's not exactly easy to get up there now, yeah. but you have to imagine back in the 1860s, you know, this would have been very difficult. Oh, yeah. But they uh, stayed up there in this area uh, between Klingman's, what is now Klingman's Dome and Spence Field, and I thought that was just kind of an interesting uh, side note there in his book, talking about all of, you know, just it's all the history 
that's in those mountains up there, you mm-hmm. know, they're very, very old. Yeah. And they have a long history. Yes, they do. And that, that family, they never, did they ever go down and interact with the, during the Civil War or anything? Or was their whole life <laughs> I don't know. They're just separated. That's pretty much all it says. I'm yeah. assuming they would have to come down to purchase uh, food items, uh, possibly trade. Uh, I don't know that yeah. you could live up there in such a remote area and completely live off the land and survive. Uh, like that. I could. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd be dead. There's another, uh, just as a sort of jump off track here a little bit, there's another place in the Unicoi Mountains, which are just south of the Smokies, and you can hike to a place called Bob Strattenbald, and there was a family that used to live out there in roughly the same time period, the 1850s. You know, and it's amazing. They just completely lived off the land. You have to put it in the time frame of the 1850s too. This is there's nothing out there. There's no way. You just wonder. We're talking uh, horses and you know carriages and you know. Would you like that rather than what we're absolutely. doing? Absolutely. Right yeah, me too. Last time with the Cades Cove. No, I'd give I, it all up in a heartbeat to live like that. Yeah, I was up there in the sky. We were in one of those cabins up there, which you know whatever. But he's like. Uh, can you believe? Can you believe what it used to be like? And I was just like, "Yeah, it must have been great." And he goes, "You said it, brother." <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, like you're just, yeah, you're just living off the land and living off the land. That's all. That's that's your job. Is Live to by just, the seasons, you know. Yep. Plant your crops. You know, you've got your cattle and yeah. I've been so nice. Raise a big old family, you know, and not have to worry about anything else. Yeah. Be great. Except you know. Disease, and everything, yeah. <laughs> except, <laughs> except any type of medical issue, and right? Uh, yeah, when a toothache would probably yeah. take your life. Yeah. So, other than that, though, be great. Yeah, and it's it's just you know, going back to the whole uh, the journal entries. It's it, you know, by the fourteenth day, Dwight notes, uh, "quote A great sense of failure and disappointment have overwhelmed him." Uh, but he believes that they've done the best job that they can with the knowledge and skills and abilities that they possess. So, you know, I think ultimately in his book, he talks about the 16 days of the search that he, uh, that it was really in, in high gear. Search goes on until September of that year of 69. And again, they weren't able to find anything of Dennis. Um, he says in 1985, he was contacted by a, Longtime ginsinger that he knew well. Uh, for those of you that don't know, gathering ginseng in the national parks is illegal. And this is why this person waited a few years before he actually told Dwight this. But uh, he supposedly found some skull, I found a skull and some bones uh, near an uprooted tree in the Big Hollow area near Tremont. But uh, Dwight, and I think he said about 30 searchers went into that area and found nothing. So, again, another dead end Mm -hmm. there. It's a shame the guy waited so long to, you know, to say anything. Almost 20 years. Yeah. But he was afraid of getting arrested for For digging up a root. He could have simply said that he was just hiking off trail and, you know. And And just... Off topic yet again. How illegal is it 
for the whole ginseng thing. Maybe maybe it was a little stronger back then because I go into a certain gas station these days and there's signs on the doors that we buy ginseng and <laughs> right. So I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it must have been harsher back then for whatever reason. I don't even know why that. Why would that be? Yeah, and I've I've seen people walking out with things going to their cars with plants and stuff in the park yeah yeah there's always going to be those people i guess it's a no-no some serious fines if you get caught yeah maybe even a little jail time well do the crime you do the time you know (laughs) right (laughs) but uh so yeah that's basically the dennis martin disappearance um it goes on for months. They find nothing, and to this day, nothing has been, yeah, uncovered. It's a crazy story. It is. Well, I mean, do you want to go ahead and break the news now? I think we can. Yeah, we we, we got that covered, right? I think so. I think so. Given our little break, we've gone a little long, right? But uh, do you wanna? Do you wanna? You you put the legwork in on this one. Do you wanna announce? A little bit of legwork. Yeah. Uh, you know, I sent out a few emails. I asked a few questions. Uh, it looks like for episode number three of the Terribly Vex podcast, we are going to be interviewing Dwight McCarter, the man, the myth, the legend himself, the searcher. The man tracker. Yes. How cool is he that? He has agreed to do an interview with us. We're going to shoot for, what, a couple hours? At least. Yeah. He has a lot of information to share. And uh, obviously, since he was there at the Dennis Martin case, we're going to be talking about the Dennis Martin case with him, mm-hmm. as well as some of the other strange cases uh, listed in his book. And others that he hasn't listed, because um, there's a lot of information. I mean, he's found hundreds of people, both alive and dead. And in the book, there's just a handful of missing missing people that went missing in the park. But uh, I mean, this was a guy that you know he did it all. He was the go-to guy. He was the man. He was the man. Yeah, still and is. So we're way. gonna have that interview coming to you. What if we don't say it's going to be episode three for sure in case his schedule doesn't align with ours? Good call. Good call. It's going to be an episode soon. Very, very soon. I'm hoping for the next episode. Yes, that would be great. Then can we finally drop this missing 411 shit? Sure. I was just joking around. What were you counting? One, two, three. Would this be the third, right? For him? If, he, if it's the next episode, it's yes. the third episode. Okay. I, that's how I'm counting it, because the introductory episode doesn't... We're not counting the introductory as a real episode. Yeah. That was just our first... That's okay. just a... Yeah. Fantastic. Just a little teaser. I don't know why that caught me, and just I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I saw you just, your eyes rolled to the back. Your eyes rolled back. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was trying to figure it out. I could not figure out which episode it was going to be, but it was like... Yeah. I was terribly vexed by... <laughs> Which episode we were going to be interviewing, Mr. McCarter? It'll be episode three or four will be the interview with Joy McCarter. Correct. Yes. 
So we're extremely excited about that. And then, and we hope you are too. Also, next episode, if it's not Dwight, we're gonna step in to the Zimbabwe, the aerial school encounter. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm gonna school you a little bit. Please do. Yeah, this is gonna be your area of expertise, and possibly a little, maybe another, maybe some other uh, encounters along the way. I'll see what I can dig so, up as well. Yeah. Well, this is this has been episode two. Episode two of the Terribly Vexed Podcast. Terribly Vexed Podcast. And we are on Instagram, Terribly Vexed Podcast. Every, just across the board. Gmail, Terribly Vexed Podcast at gmail.com. Twitter. I don't even know. No, we're not on Twitter. We're not on Twitter. I don't know. I don't use it. I'll start one. Yes, we're on Twitter. Terribly okay, Vexed Podcast good, across the way. Good. Start one tonight. Should we do a Facebook? No. Yeah. It's uh, a dead platform. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's dead. I, I, yeah, I hate We're Facebook moving on. too. So. Facebook is dead. Yes. Okay. So Gmail, Instagram, Twitter, Terribly Vex Podcast. Thank you for listening. Yes. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Darn tootin'. That's good.